Hi, I'm Anna Soper, and this is Teen People, the podcast that shares the stories of folks who appeared in Teen People magazine as young adults. My next guest was in the November 2000 issue of Teen People in a story featuring young voices in American politics. At the age of 18, Derek Seaver told Teen People, I see the job of being a citizen as the most important job in our democratic system. He was profiled by Teen People during his historic campaign as he ran for a seat in Ohio's House of Representatives. In November 2000, he won his seat by less than 250 votes and became Ohio's youngest state legislator. This, if you'll remember, was the year George W. Bush beat Al Gore and Ralph Nader for the presidency. At that time, in an interview with Dayton Daily News, Derek's father said his son's candidacy would mobilize the youth vote. I think there are a lot of young people who want to be heard, he said. For his part, Derek told CBS News, a lot of things have become so partisan lately. Derek is the grandson of a steel worker. Today, he lives and works in the heart of Silicon Valley. He represents that shift from America's industrial economy to an information and service economy that bears little resemblance to the U.S. heartland of another age. Derek spoke with me about his faith in the democratic process and his hopes for the future. Hi, Derek. Hi, how are you? I'm well, how are you? I'm doing fine. Good. Thank you for having me and sorry about the uh, the lack of video as we uh, kind of fight through the uh, the power outages here. That's okay. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just pulling up my questions here because I, I made some questions. I have a ton of questions. Um, there's there's so much to talk about and so much to ask you about. Um, uh, I'm, like I said, I'm more than happy that you, you even thought of me. It's really fun just to uh, talk to complete strangers um, <laughs> with the common thread being my collection of Teen People magazines. And it's so random sure. that I have that collection of Teen People magazines. <laughs> um but I had a subscription to Teen People back in the day, and so I, I have this I, one, okay, which you were in. Yes, and it has been it has been so long since I have seen that I, I don't even remember what it's what's in it. So, that's, <laughs> do you have a copy of of the magazine at all? I, I don't. I don't know. So this is a story. This was the November two thousand issue of Teen People. And we have Charlie's Angels on the cover because that came out at the time. Yeah, I remember that. I went to see that in theaters at the time. <laughs> Imagine that, eh? Going right. to a movie theater to right, like, yeah. wasn't watch that a movie. Amazing, yeah, wasn't that an amazing time? So this is a story called Election 2000 Guide, The Changing Faces of Politics. Um, and it's all about the youth vote. And uh, it profiles uh, some young people involved in politics, including you. Okay. So we have this picture of you. Standing in front of a barn. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I do remember that. Yeah, that was actually taken at the uh, Shelby County, Ohio Fairgrounds, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that was a uh, an annual stop uh, in uh, in my part of uh, of Ohio. We I had uh, my district uh, that I represented was three counties. Shelby County was the largest, and I'm pretty sure I remember that photo being taken there. Yeah. Yeah, you look very clean cut. Uh, yeah, <laughs> thank you. I'll take that as a compliment. I actually thought you were a young Republican, if you don't mind me saying. <laughs> no, that's all right. I, I, I was not. <laughs> um, no, I read that you uh, you were um, 18 when, when you got elected. You were 17 when you started your, your campaign, um, yeah. but you just met the threshold for, for electability. Um, what was that like to be so young and to, to win an election on your first attempt? Yeah, it was it was kind of a crazy time, actually. I um, so you're you're correct across the board. I I started uh, my campaign uh, my during my senior year of high school. I was 17 when I started. Um, I was I turned 18. I'm going to try to do this from memory. I turned 18. I think a month before the election, which is how I was was eligible. A month before the primary election, and honestly, I ran uh, in part. I was the 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 head of the Young Democrats in my county. My county was kind of overwhelmingly Republican. Um, the outgoing state representative at the time, who's now a, a national figure, Jim Jordan, was actually the outgoing state rep, uh, and there were there were no Democrats running for office. So I, I chose to run um, and and really got involved more than anything, just to be involved. Uh, it was uh, it was a uh, it was an exciting race in the sense that you know I didn't run I think with the intention of winning. Uh, I, I ran you know to get involved and to advance you know what I thought were were good ideas. Um, but yeah, when, when we won, I, I may have been as surprised as anybody, <laughs> to be completely honest. 
uh, but yeah, it was, it was an exciting time. It was, it was, it was fun. Uh, I, I really do look back with almost entirely good memories of that election. Describe what election night was like. How did you react when you realized you'd won? I was, uh, I was, I was surprised. One of my memories uh, of it was I, I had, I was giving a speech. I was uh, celebrating, if I remember right, at a, at a union hall in my hometown in, in Minster, Ohio. And we had a, a number of supporters there, including my family. And I remember at the time, I, I, I think I cursed in my, uh, in my, uh, my election speech, uh, which I'm sure they didn't Uh-oh. want me to do. But that was my, <laughs> but that was my reaction. It was honestly like, it was, it was completely surprising. Um, hmm. But again, just super exciting, right? I, I mean, I had grown up always being interested in government and politics. So to get that opportunity was really cool. I read that you were inspired to enter politics when you watched Oliver Stone's film JFK. I did. I was, uh, I was my, I had an eighth grade teacher that showed that movie every year. And I, and I talk about weird life memories that stick with you. He, he had a choice in the class that it was the choices were uh, JFK or dances with wolves. And in my eighth grade class, the class chose JFK. We watched it before that. Uh, I was obviously incredibly young. Then I actually wanted to be a sportscaster because um, I had grown up in a sports-related family. But that movie started my interest in history and politics and, and in a number of other things. And so, yeah, I look back at that as kind of the moment where I decided that I, I was more interested in, in going into the political system. And it's funny because during your run, you were described as like a young Jack Kennedy. That's what people said about you. <laughs> I would certainly reject that. <laughs> clearly, clearly, my career in politics has not been, uh, been that successful. There was a lot of things that young young people in any generation, including mine, could take from from him and his generation of leaders, really. And, and maybe there was some comparisons there. You know, I think, and you might remember this as well, I think in the 90s um, with President Clinton in, in office um, and, and, you know, his kind of first connection to the baby boom generation, which was my parents' generation, I think there was probably some connection there um, and kind of that feeling of, uh, you know, kind of returning to that era a little bit. And that probably was was part of that. Everything's just so much more downbeat now. We don't have that yeah. kind of fun excitement um, in politics anymore. Yeah, I agree, and I, you know, it's certainly sad to see. Um, I think there are certainly pockets of it uh, here, and I think you know the election of President Obama probably brought back some of that that optimism here. But I agree. I, I think you know everybody that that lived through it remembered the '90s as a time, you know, the, you know, the Soviet Union having fallen in the you know the late '80s, early '90s, and. Uh, and kind of the American moment in, in, in the Western moment. And you had that, that optimism that was there. And yeah, that probably started to go away on 9-11. And, and I don't know if we've ever fully recovered from that. Um, but yeah, no doubt, there's definitely been a shift in the, in the national mood since then. It's interesting because when you were elected, the media landscape was so profoundly different. But there are actually some parallels to today because you entered political life following a presidential impeachment and just before a major national crisis. Yeah, that's incredibly interesting that you brought that up. Is I, I don't know if I'd ever considered that parallel before, but I think that's uh, that's really an interesting observation because you're right. I mean, I, I remember obviously I was in high school at the time. One of my formative uh, processes in politics was watching the Clinton impeachment on television, seeing that process play out, um, hearing that you know the back and forth going on in, in the dialogue, and then I, I absolutely distinctly remember you know the first budget that I worked on in office. Uh, I, we were literally on the floor of the house and one of my colleagues made the observation that our biggest dilemma was figuring out how to spend all the money. And this was in, in June of 2001, come 9-11 and, and uh, Enron and WorldCom and, and, and the events of 2001, you know, that was obviously not a good year uh, in American history. So the difference between June of that summer and then later that fall was, was night and day. So you're right. That's an interesting parallel. I never, I never considered that before. And it just goes to show, they say a week is a long time in politics and how, <laughs> yeah. how quickly things can change. Yeah, it, it really can. It really can. And, and you're right. And I think in this world, it, it, you know, now it's become probably a day or two. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, I, I didn't have a website until my last term in office in 2005. I, I never had my campaigns on social media at all. Um, when I was a college student, Facebook was just then being allowed for college students only. So, yeah, the world in that regard has shifted completely. I don't know, you know, as a candidate, it'd be hard it'd be interesting to think about doing it again in this environment because yeah, the world of press releases and local newspapers and all that, that we experienced in the early two thousands, that's, that's mostly gone. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I took a look at the book that you published following your election, a kid in the house. Okay. Some of the references to things like you were clutching a newspaper on your way to the union hall. Yep. When you got home after you realized you had won the election, there was a stack of paper 
with phone messages that someone had written down from yeah. the answering machine. I, was, yeah, I did a double take right? when I read that. I yeah. was like, yeah, a stack those. of like messages in paper? Like, right. where did they yeah. come from? Oh, someone wrote them down from the phone. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. Still, I can still see it in my, my answering machine sitting on my mom and dad's bar in, in Ohio. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, even simple things like that. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we clearly don't know what it, I mean, we don't even know what a landline is now. Yeah. Right. And, you know, so it was, it was a matter of back then having to be home at certain times to get calls for your campaign. And mm-hmm. yeah, it, it, seeing how the world shifted, it's, it's really impressive. It's really impressive. I've spent, you know, the vast majority of my career in, in politics and government in one way or the other, you know, but either in office myself or running campaigns, which I did for a number of years and now working for an elected official. So, you know, I've kind of seen it from different sides of the, of the table, but, but honestly, you know, some of the most um, enjoyment that I get and still do get is, you know, I make it a point every election to go out and knock on doors for a candidate that I like or support. And I've done this, you know, every two years since then, because I think truly like hearing from folks, you know, talking to folks about what they're actually experiencing is the double-edged sword is, I mean, politics and government, it's a fishbowl and, you know, you're in it and you think that the, the, everything in it is all that's going on in the world. And, you know, you're working on a budget at whatever level you're on, you're working on a project, but you go out and you talk to folks and they're dealing with things that have nothing to do with that. And a lot of times they're looking to government to, to help. And I, I don't think we, we should lose that connection in that way um, because it's easy. I think when you're in the system, it's really easy to lose that connection. It's easy to, to, to look at it only from the perspective of being inside it. California is one of those places where, you know, those conversations kind of are, are on the front edge and, and it's exciting to be a part of that. And I think, you know, how those things work out really does depend on, on a pretty broad base and wide uh, civic engagement. So, you know, I, I, my boss has been working on uh, measures to allow 17-year-olds uh, the right to vote. She's, she's put forward um, uh, resolution supporting an effort in Sacramento to do that. I think it would be exciting to see a whole new crop of voters, you know, engaged uh, in the system. I think this year you're going to see a lot of activism in the United States, uh, particularly amongst young folks to get out uh, and get interested. And, you know, the conversations right around uh, around racial justice and equity, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. These are conversations really being driven by people engaging in the process that maybe haven't always been engaged. And I think right now the way folks that are in leadership positions or in government engaging with those those individuals, getting them to stay engaged, getting them at the table, it, not just to give people everything they want, but I think to engage them in the process of, you know, how the, how the government functions, how it works. Those are all like really exciting things to be involved in right now. And I'm, I'm super excited to be in California and in the Bay Area, where, like I said, I feel like, you know, we, we get to be kind of at the front of a lot of that. Do you think there's engagement happening? Because um, sometimes when I feel pessimistic and and when when since I'm on the outside looking in as a Canadian, mm. I'm seeing a lot of division. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm like many Americans. I think I'm greatly disappointed in our national leadership. I'm not a I'm not a Trump supporter, but because from from my seat, division comes with the, the territory when you have these type of hard conversations, right? I think if you look back at the moments in American history and in Western history, right, where we've had these big national conversations taking place, you know, division comes with it. You cannot advance the ball forward without that that coming with it. But where my greatest disappointment in our national leadership comes in is that I think it, it is incumbent upon the leadership to try to rise above that, right, to try to find common ground, to be able to move your, your country, your state, your city forward uh, without adding to that division without adding to that hatred, understanding that people are going to be scared about change and they're going to be scared about conversations. I think it's natural, right? doesn't mean the conversation shouldn't be had, but when you have that mixture going on and you have the national leadership, not rising above it and actually engaging in it and making it worse, I I can understand how that impression could come off. And I don't think it's wrong. I think America does have a lot of division right now, but I, but I also think a lot of it's being driven because the the folks that shouldn't be driving it are, are still at the table doing that. What do you think the Democratic Party needs to do to defeat Trump at the next next election? Yeah, I think first of all they need to stay united around their platform. I think I think the the ticket they put together is a good start. I you know I'm excited about 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 Vice President Biden. I'm excited about Senator Harris certainly here as a as a Bay Area uh, person. Um, so I think the ticket is is strong. It represents a future look uh, for the United States. I think despite the age of our standard bearer, I think uh, I think people are going to be impressed at the debates. Um, with with his ability to govern. And I think that's something that's been missing for the last last four years. So first and foremost, I think we need to stay united 
uh, right, as a, as a party and not 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 attack each other. But the other thing I think we need to, to, to do is I think we need to be very careful to not um, to not give up on on some of these major conversations that we're having uh, in order to to attract votes here or there. I, I think what you're going to find is I think you're going to find a, a country ready to have those conversations if its leaders will just engage in them. So I, I really hope that you don't see, you know, a lot of pivoting going on or, you know, I'm going to play this way or that way. I you know, understand the electoral map being what it is and you got to, you know, you got to win in certain places. But, but at the same time, I think these conversations are part of why the Democratic Party is so well situated in this election right now. And I hope they don't give up on that. Do you have concerns about um, the Democratic process at this time and, and in November when the election takes place? Yeah, I think it would be hard not to. I think, you know, it's a global pandemic. It's the first time we face this in 100 years, literally. Uh, and, and I think if I remember my history right, by the 1920 election, it was mostly gone. And that's obviously not going to be the case, I think, I think this time around. So, yeah, I think we, we've got some infrastructure issues that we're, we're dealing with. Uh, that we that we have to to fix, and I think you know that that's going to make anybody a little bit a little bit worried. But at the same time, I think you know the system of federalism that we have is is good, and I certainly trust our local officials to carry out elections freely and fairly. So I think as long as that's respected and put forward, you know, I think the country will get through it. Um, but uh, I know we're we're putting a lot of time and effort here in uh, in Santa Clara County into that in our process because we you know the, my my boss and her colleagues administer the registrar of voters here. So I think you know if you if you if we give if we give that the due, uh, the due, due that it, it deserves, I think we'll, we'll get through it just fine. Um, you have a, a, an interesting career path because you started at politics uh, when you were college age yep. and then went into Silicon Valley and um, now have shifted back into the political realm um, in a supportive role. What's your job looking like now? What's a typical day for you at this point? Yeah, it's a, it's a really exciting job. I'm, I'm the chief of staff to a county supervisor in, uh, in Santa Clara County. She represents uh, a part of San Jose and then, and then two, uh, two smaller cities uh, next to it, Santa Clara and Campbell. Um, my boss is uh, Susan Ellenberg, uh, just elected in 2018. And my job is, uh, is, is, is really exciting because I get to do kind of three distinct things. One, I, I lead a, a team of, of 10 folks who are incredible uh, it's a great team of people. Um, I, I get to be an advisor to Supervisor Ellenberg, who is someone I've known for years, who I respect uh, very much, and who's incredibly passionate about a lot of these conversations uh, that we, we were having. And then, and then third, I get to be involved in all the different issues that are going on right now. And when I came, when I came to work at the county, which is uh, California's primary uh, health agency, I never thought in a million years that 12 months into that, we would be facing the, the coronavirus situation and the pandemic, which has now put the county kind of front and center in those conversations. So Santa Clara County issued the first ever, uh, the first shelter in place in the United States when they did so on March 16th. Uh, it was a you know, leader on that front. Um, our, our administration has, and, and my boss and our colleagues have done a very, very good job in keeping us safe and healthy through this. But it has been incredibly exciting to be at the table for that, um, because again, I would have never anticipated that when I went to work. Uh, at the county, most of the action, frankly, in California government takes place at the city level, um, especially in large urban uh, counties like ours. Uh, but uh, this is one of those times where that has shifted a little bit. So, hmm. how have you been doing personally during the pandemic? You know, it's been it's been a challenge. I you know I, I like I like people. I like being out, and I think for for folks that are that are like that, it's it's a little bit harder uh, to be in. But you know, my I have a ten year old son now. You know, his his school is, is transitioned over to um, to online learning. You know, he's healthy. He's happy. Uh, he's getting used to the new uh, the new system. Uh, you know, my wife is healthy and happy uh, as am I. Um, so I think you know, all things considered, we're doing great, and we count ourselves really blessed and lucky uh, through this. But yeah, that those first those first like four to six weeks. We're a little tough. I'm also a, a huge baseball fan, and I was actually uh, at spring training when the uh, when the major league baseball season was canceled. Uh, I was in Arizona while it, when it happened, and it was um, kind of a crazy time because uh, you know that that was like one of those things that always made me know it was spring and summer, and then it's gone. And so yeah, you, the, the first bit was a little bit hard to adjust to. You know, and you made the point earlier. As long as we continue to see people making adjustments and, and working their way through it. You know, again, no doubt people are going to get through it. And, I, and I, I'm really I've been impressed by government's ability to kind of change the initial uh, lockdown order, if you will, and, and kind of move us in a way where we can try to get back to some semblance of normal life and, and yet and yet keep everybody safe. And so, yeah, we'll I think we'll, we'll get through it. But I know we're all we're all hoping and, and praying for the vaccine as quick as they can do it safely.
Yes, absolutely. I was wondering about your career in, in Silicon Valley. Sure. Yeah. So I started uh, my career here was uh, for a big chunk of it was at the what was the San Jose Silicon Valley Chamber of Commerce. Um, and then it became it changed its name to the Silicon Valley Organization. Uh, I started out as their uh, as their public policy person at the at the chamber. And I, I ended up becoming their executive vice president. But effectively, we were uh, we were a lobbying organization uh, that lobbied on behalf of the chamber's members, uh, which really was exciting because it, it represented the chamber here as about 1500 members. And it represents a, a good cross section of companies from, you know, small and medium sized businesses, which are really the heart of what a chamber of commerce does uh, all the way up to some of the larger names that, you know, everybody, everybody everywhere knows, right. The apples and the, the alphabets and, and, et cetera. Right. So, uh, so it was an exciting, exciting five years uh, that I spent there um, lobbying the city and the state and occasionally the federal government, but, but mostly the city and the state. Uh, at that level. Uh, I spent a year at the San Jose Downtown Association after I left the chamber, and I was actually intending to stay there longer. I really enjoyed my time there. I've been a downtown resident in San Jose since I moved here, and I've been, uh, I've been uh, very passionate about its development and growth. Uh, but when, uh, when my current boss won her election in 2018, um, it, was a, it was a really exciting opportunity and a big honor to be able to go and serve in this role. And when I started at the Downtown Association, she was in a really crowded primary of folks, you know, no idea what was going to happen. And so it's exciting when she won and, and went over. And then for the last uh, year and a half, I've been, been her chief of staff. But, but most of my time here has really been spent uh, representing both at the Chamber and SJDA, the small and medium-sized business community uh, of the city. Uh, before government. And, and I, I really, I really have enjoyed that because one of the things that is carried with me throughout my political career is um, I think entrepreneurship is a really big key to unlocking, unlocking dreams in this country. And I think, you know, this is a place that is uniquely suited for that, right? Uh, it is a, it is a large immigrant population here, uh, many of which are entrepreneurs. Um, I think it, it truly is a place where, where whatever you came here to do, you should be able to do. And that's one of those avenues that you get to actually see people doing that, you know, in, in real practice and the innovation, the ingenuity, it's incredible. So it was, it was a really exciting time uh, to be able to do that. And even though I love my current job, I obviously missed that a little bit. And I, I still love talking to folks that are out, that are out doing that work every day. Do you see yourself getting back into elected office again? Uh, I certainly wouldn't rule it out. I mean, I, I had a great time. Uh, my my first you know time in office, it was an honor to, to represent that area. But I, but I'll be honest with you, when I when I moved to California, and I've been in California, and not I've been in the Silicon Valley now for about eight years, but I've been in California for thirteen. And when I moved out here, I, I did it you know because I wanted to pursue you know my dreams in a place where I thought that that would be be made possible. I, I always had this image of California as a uh, you know, a place with, with endless tomorrows, right? It was a place that had, to, it was an exciting place that brought those uh, conversations to the forefront and it was a place to grow and, and, and take on some of those challenges for myself. So I never came out with that intention, um, but I, I certainly do love this city uh, and I love its people. And so I wouldn't rule that out. Um, but I, but I, but right now I'm focused on what I'm doing and I've had a, I've had a good run. So whether I do or I don't, I, I've enjoyed it either way. <laughs> I heard that when you were running to be Ohio State representative, a lot of people asked whether it was a stepping stone to the presidency. Do you see yourself <laughs> running for the presidency someday? Don't wish that on anybody. God, no, no, I, I, I would. No, I, you know, obviously, so no, I would not be qualified for that. And I'd be about if, if we're talking about stepping stones now, I would be about. 40 stepping stones away at a point in my life where I'm no longer 18 and I don't have that much time. So even if I was interested, uh, no, I, I, I don't. Uh, but uh, but I, I certainly wish well anybody that wants it. That has to be the world's most thankless job, to be totally honest with you. So it's got to be a rough run. You're the right age for it now, though. Finally, yeah, I guess this would be the first election that I was eligible. Yeah, I, I actually, I did think about that earlier this year. I was like, look at that. Um, yeah, finally, I, I would have been a year too young in 2016 having worked in proximity to tech companies and mm -hmm. also having worked in the political realm, what are your thoughts on the role of tech companies uh, when it comes to fact-checking, political advertising, and, uh, and, and this world of fake news in which we live and yeah. operate? Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think ultimately we have to be incredibly careful both ways on that. Um, I mean, it, it, to answer your direct question, I mean, clearly I believe they have a role um, and I am by no means a, a tech person as far as understanding the algorithms and the process that they go through to do that. But I would say from a, from a governmental perspective, I, I absolutely respect 
you know, the position that, 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 that cleaning up and that censorship needs to be few and far between because a world in which frankly, the government or a private company is picking and choosing what can be shown based on what is true or not. I, I understand the position of the companies, many of the companies that that is a, that's a dangerous world. And we have to be careful about placing that because I don't think we want a world where depending on which party is in power, you know, one thing is listed as true versus another and then, and then, and then vice versa. I think it's a more complicated question, obviously, for the federal government as to what, um, you know, what, what constitutes trust and how much power these, these companies, companies have now. And I think you could probably make a case in, in both ways. But I also think that, you know, the tech industry, I think the last I read uh, is representing about 12% of the U.S. GDP. So, I mean, one in eight dollars, I think, you know, the federal government also should be pretty careful about stifling uh, what is arguably and maybe not even that arguably its most innovative sector. Uh, right at a time, particularly right now, where it's one of the major things helping us get through the pandemic. So, uh, you know, that's a that's a really fascinating question. But I, I'll be honest with you, I err I err more on the side of free speech and openness. Um, and clearly, to your point, there are some very obvious fake news sources of edited videos or clips that you can kind of uh, subjectively say have been have been falsified. But I think short of that, you have to be really careful about where you draw that line. I read um, in an op-ed uh, that you wrote in 2017 um, that you feel like America's public services and freedoms require more from our citizens than mere patriotism. The future of our country depends on our voices, our actions, working with our representatives to get things done. How do you think social media feeds into that? Yeah, I think social media is a key part of that, and I think it's positive. And I think the point that we were trying to make in that in that op-ed is, is that you know, elections, if you, if you stop, if you stop at just voting, that's not much of a democracy, right? I mean, government really requires that active participation. I think what social media has done on the very positive side is it has broken down what used to be a really high wall, right? A wall where it was a telephone call or a letter that was often only answered if you had given money or if you had had access to the candidate in some way. And I, I remember that from being in office in those days, right? I mean, we can say all we wanted that didn't happen, but it absolutely did. Um, so I think it has taken that high wall down and it's made it not only so you can have more of that direct access, but it's also made it so more people can organize, right? You don't need to hire professional lobbyists anymore to organize. You don't need to join an interest group to organize. Those are still positive things to do, but you don't have to do that if you want to organize in a different way. So all that, all that is positive, right? I think where social media has, has harmed us is democracy in so many ways also requires mutual respect and it requires you compromise and it requires people understanding that their voice isn't going to always win the day. And I think what we used to have in a world where everything was done face to face, or at least by voice was you, you, you had to, you had to be empathetic to the person that you were talking to, right. When you're sitting across from them, one of the issues and struggles I think government has with social media is it's, it's kind of the machine gun of feedback, right? And, you know, you're putting a big distance between the, you know, the, the, the person firing and the person receiving. And the problem with that is I think people say things they don't mean, you know, it gets, it gets mean, it gets nasty, right? You've seen this proliferation of, of the president's Twitter account, like everything like, and I think that becomes really easy the same way we maybe insult one another through text message when we wouldn't, you know, in a call or a, in a sit down meeting. So I think we have to be careful about that. But by and large, I find it to be a net positive because certainly if I'm looking back 20 years ago to when I started to now, the amount of folks and the different perspective that I hear engaged in the process is you know, monumentally more now. And I, I have to believe that social media is a big part of that. You know, it was a lot of door-to-door walking. It was a lot of conversation. It was pretty much just a relentless idea that we could, we could meet people. You, know, you, could, you could meet enough people on your way to a win, right? Because I think people fundamentally want to be listen to, I think they want to be, be, you know, I think they want to be, be, I think they want to have discussion. Right. And it's crazy what you can do at somebody's door, you know, for, for 30 seconds or a minute when you, when you really sit down and talk with them, not so much about what you're selling, but what they, what problems they're having with government or, or just general problems in the way that you can come to an agreement with what, you know, folks like AOC and, and so many other really great leaders are doing right now is, you know, they're taking what we were doing in 2000 and multiplying it you know, a thousand times over thanks to social media. Right. And that's, that's super exciting because what used to be, you know, knocking on a hundred doors in an afternoon, I mean, you could communicate with, you know, 10,000 people in, in, in a matter of minutes now. Right. Yeah. So I think, I think when done right, that's a really exciting possibility for the future because, because you are right. I mean, it's it, people that have influence in the system will win traditional system races, but these way, these new processes allow people to break down those barriers. 
What was it like when you became a state representative? Uh, how did you um, slip into that role and, and what were some of the successes and challenges from that time? Sure. I, you know, I think, so I, I guess I can answer the second one first, as far as the challenges. I think, you know, looking back, I, I, and I don't want this to come out the wrong way because I, I really do, I'm a huge advocate in young people getting involved and particularly getting involved running for office. It's a wonderful experience. But I do think looking back, I wish I would have waited a bit longer to get involved because there, there, you know, there is a lot, I think, that you learn going to college and you know, starting a job, you know, whatever your trajectory is at that point. I think there's a lot you learn and there's life experiences you bring to the table. So that's probably the biggest challenge, frankly, is, is starting at a point where I didn't have you know, 20, 30, 40 years of, of life experience to, to, to fall back on. Um, as far as like, some of the, the, the positives, I mean, first of all, it was a great year to do it because it was the first year of Ohio term limits. So we had 99 people in the house and 45 of us were freshmen. So even though I was the youngest of the bunch, it didn't quite feel that way. So that, was, that made the transition, you know, a little easier. Uh, and I also got a chance to work on some really exciting stuff. I mean, probably the one I'm most proud of is starting the ball rolling on, on talking about how Ohio was going to set up its school system and, and could it consolidate its school districts and, you know, could it get to a point where it could get some operational efficiencies and other things going on uh, in a way that just didn't exist uh, at, at that time. So it was exciting to work on a number of those things. Um, but I think, you know, ultimately, you know, six years came with a lot of challenges, but it was, as I said, kind of at the beginning, it, my memories are 99% good of that experience. It was a great, great experience. And what made you decide to run for the Democrats versus the Republicans? I was, so I was raised a Democrat um, and I, and that was the, the party of my family, both of my, my parents, uh, my mother still is, and my, my father is, has passed away now, but both of my parents were public school teachers. And so I was raised in a, in a democratic uh, a labor family, uh, frankly, which is interesting what I later did for a, for a living. My grandfather was a steel worker. So I was, I was raised as a Democrat. Um, and I, you know, I, and I always related to that, to that, that side of the aisle in, in, in so many ways. Um, I've had my differences with them on, on a number of issues over the years, certainly. But I think the belief that we as a country, you know, collectively can, can take the place forward, I think is kind of your fundamental democratic belief if I were boiling it down. Uh, and that's something that I'm still, still very much committed to. Your campaign manager at the time wrote the introduction for that book, Kid in the House, um, and he described you as the bright future of democracy, which is very sweet. It is. <laughs> Overstate, overstated. But <laughs> he uh, checkmarked uh, three things that he, that you both agreed made you electable at that time in that state as a Democrat. And those three things were your stance on reproductive rights, your support for the Second Amendment, and your support for public schooling. What do you think makes someone electable now in 2020? That's a great question. I mean, I think it really depends on, I think it depends on where you're at, but, but if I were, but if I were going to kind of earmark uh, one thing, I think, honestly, this is one of those random times in American history and they've happened before, but I think it's one of the random times where not being an incumbent and thinking outside the box is actually to your benefit. Uh, and and that'd probably be the unifying characteristic. And I think it's manifesting itself in interesting ways. I think, you know, some candidates that are maybe a little bit more right of where the Republican Party would have generally been are getting elected in some places and, and in others, Democrats to the left, partly because I think voters are really thirsty for new ways of thinking. And, and I think, you know, what's causing that is we're going through all this transition, right? We're going through an economic transition and a social and cultural transition as we have these conversations about things you brought up, you know, race relations in the United States, social justice and equity, how the economy is going to adjust to moving kind of post-industrial and into this technological world if we're not already there, which we probably are. So I think all that change is making voters thirsty to get candidates and, and electeds that match up with it. And so that would be the unifying characteristic. But I've had the kind of fun experience, I would definitely say fun, to live in one of the most conservative areas in the country, right? Like, as I think I mentioned earlier, my predecessor now being kind of a leading voice for conservative republicanism, and now yeah. certainly one of the most progressive places in the country in the Bay Area. So it would be hard to draw a single line as to what a great candidate looked like, even between those two areas. Yeah, that's a really good point, because we've seen someone now reach the presidency who defies all logic of electability. So... Yeah. yeah, right. It, no, it truly, it truly does. Right. It truly does. I mean, that would have been an impossibility, I think, 15 years earlier, maybe even eight years earlier. Right. So, yeah. And I think you're seeing that on the local level a lot. 
Yeah. And, you know, to go from Barack Obama to Donald Trump is is just uh, something else altogether. Right. Huge swing. Huge swing. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, you think I mean, you can't hardly find another period in American history where that has happened. Yeah, it's quite, quite kind of crazy. Where yeah. do you think things are swinging? It's obvious that America is going through something. Where is this going? Right. I, you know, I. I I don't see, and I true, and I'm not saying this just because of my personal belief system. And this is, I don't see, you know, Trumpism as the future of the country, right? I, I think that that is um, that is a that has happened, and it, it, you know, it, and I think the country is going to have to deal with that, you know, over the, over the course certainly the next 90 days, and then and then with what goes forward after that. But I, but I really do think if you look, look at the movement in certainly in the American cities, but I think also increasingly in American suburbs, uh, and then and then even even in, in, a, in a number of rural areas around the country, I think the movement is definitely towards a center left country that that addresses again those two big issues that I just brought up. I think we we, we have to take head on how this economy is going to adjust to a, a brand new world, right? And we have to take head on you know, how the, the nation is going to adjust to cultural and social conversations we probably should have been having, you know, for the last 50 years. And I just, in my, in my gut, I just don't see a center right thinking leading that conversation. I think a center left conversation is going to lead that conversation. And, and I don't think the country is quite ready for, you know, certainly no, if it's for, you know, for Bernie at the national level, or, you know, even for, you know, for, for an AOC or others, at the national level at this time. But I, but I think you, you are seeing a country pulling a little center left. And I think that probably started with President Obama. And certainly you saw that that happen again in 2018. There's always the possibility that Donald Trump might win again. And how do you how do you feel about um, about that? Yeah, I, you know, I think you said it earlier. I mean, it's part of the democratic process, and I think there, there are there are parts of the country, uh, certainly in the Midwest, in you know, places where where I, I'm from, uh, that I think there's an there's an attraction there, and and I think we have to respect that, and I think we have to get that, and I think we have to to have those conversations. I I, I remember uh, I went home for uh, for Christmas after the 2016 election back to Ohio, and. I have a family member who I respect a good deal. He's kind of a right of center Republican. And he was the only member of my family that was willing to admit that he voted for Trump. And when I asked him why, he said, well, because the perception amongst a lot of people is that people that live where you live and on the other coast don't care about me. And I think that was you know, kind of a telling moment for me to understand that like some of this rises above politics. And while, you know, even folks like the person I'm referencing here might ideologically not like where Trump stands or where he's at, there's going to be that connection when he, you know, quote unquote, speaks for you. So I think, you know, the Democratic Party, our party has to understand that, has to have those conversations and has to learn how to engage with people in, in the same way, not with the, the vulgarity and the, which I don't, you know, don't think advances the conversation, but certainly engaging with people in a way with, with empathy and with understanding where they're coming from. And in so, so many parts of this country, I think that's important, particularly with the changing economy. So if Donald Trump is reelected, you know, I would be greatly disappointed, but I also think there's plenty of lessons we can learn from that. Getting back to that op-ed, uh, something really jumped out at me uh, in that op-ed that you wrote about civic engagement um, in relation to this coronavirus pandemic, because you wrote that statistics show that just about 50% of all eligible citizens voted during the last two presidential elections. So that would have been 2012 and 2016, I think you mm -hmm. were referring to. Yep. You said, as U.S. citizens, part of our job is to uphold our democracy. But according to a recent Pew Research study, only 48% of adults directly take part in any civic group or activity. Imagine what the repercussions would be if only 50% of U.S. employees decided to go to work tomorrow. Yep. Now, we've seen in the last few months what happens to society, economy, culture, um, when a lot of people don't go to work all at the same time. That's a wonderful yep. analogy that you drew there in a pre-pandemic era um, about how important civic engagement really is. Yeah, I, yeah, it's, it's, I think we were talking about earlier, the, the idea that democracy is elections is, we've got to get that out of our heads because it, it is so much more than that, right? It is a part of that. But, but I think people that study democracies around the world that have been successful, um, that have been longstanding, have have found that it's it's not just the election, but it's also your engagement in non-governmental actors, your engagement in civic organizations, as the op-ed points out, right? Your engagement in the process with your elected officials in the in the intermediate times. It's all of that. It has to happen. And and again, you know, one of the things going back to an earlier conversation as well, but one of the things that with social media that we have to watch is that it doesn't break those things down so much 
that we stop being involved in, you know, our local charitable organizations, our local CBOs, our local churches, our local synagogues. I mean, these are the things, I mean, that in so many ways is the beating heart of democracy, right? And it's not just, not just voting. And so you're going to have to be more involved in those things. And you're right, I had not considered that parallel, but yeah, in the same way that it has obviously brought our economies in both of our countries to a, a pretty heavy halt. Yeah, 50% turnout in an election is not good. Um, that's not something that we should be proud of. Uh, we, 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 need to, we need to work on that. And you know, hopefully this generation will do that. How do you keep so optimistic? I'm hearing a lot of optimism in, in the way you're speaking with me, not just about the broader political situation, but also locally in your community, the kind of work that you're doing. Yeah. There's so much passion in, in your voice uh, when I'm hearing you talk about your job. What's driving you forward right now? Because there's a lot that, that feels really toxic. Sure. Sure. Well, I think I have the benefit. I, and I'm, 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 I'm an optimistic person by nature, but I think I also have had the benefit of, of the place that I live. I, again, I, I think I mentioned it earlier. I live in a place that I, I feel, and I felt it since I moved here, that is just eternally optimistic, right? It's, uh, you know, our governor, Governor Newsom describes California as America's coming attraction. And I've always, I've always loved that. I, I think that's a, a great representation of the state. And so I get to live not only in that state, but then in the area of that state that is driving so much of that, of that forward. And the challenges are huge. I mean, I don't think, you know, you've identified a, a number of them today in your question. I think, you know, the challenges are huge, but I would say one of the things that has kept me probably the most optimistic, even through this time, is being able to to live here, you know, in a place that that kind of sees around that corner. And I think, you know, the the, the rest of the country is going to be seeing around that corner pretty soon too. I, I, I'm really optimistic about my area and where it's going and its ability to lead on a lot of these conversations. You mentioned that you have a son. Uh, uh, what sort of um, world do you want to see for him? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Well, you know, it was it was. You know, to be completely honest with you, I, I went to work for, for my boss, Supervisor Ellenberg, because of, of my relationship with her and what I believed and what she was doing on the campaign trail. But I shared this with her when she hired me, that it was also important for me, uh, for my son to see that world play out too, to see a, you know, a, a great, you know, strong woman leader uh, leading in our area, you know, an area that he gets to, to grow up in and, and see. And, and obviously she's not alone. There's a lot, a lot of folks in California like that. So I think, you know, a world that, that he gets to grow up in where, where that is, that's reinforced and a lot of those barriers are broken down um, where there's a, you know, there's a kind of a wider belief in, in equality and equity, right. And in, in, in where we're going and also a world, I think where he recognizes some of the advantages that he has, you know, growing up um, with, with his particular background in a way that certainly I didn't. And, and I think people in my generation did not. And I think we we've had to, to come to grips with that in, in different ways, but for him at his age, I, I'm excited to see that, that play out. Um, and then on the, the flip side, you know, less political and more just just general. I mean, you talked earlier about newspapers and answering machines. I mean, I'm thrilled to see the world he grows up in, you know, on, on that front. Right. The fact that he's 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 mobile native and he's playing with virtual reality devices. And he's I mean, it's just the educational opportunities. I'm convinced he's going to be I mean, not that this is a high bar, but I'm convinced he's going to be 10 times smarter than me by the time he's like 14 years old. But I mean, he's got all these tools at his disposal. It's 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 a wonderful thing to see. What are the issues that you that are close to your heart that you want to see uh, positive forward change on in uh, the next uh, administration or two? Yeah, I, so I think we need to get very serious about education reform in the country and, and recognize that the way we have done things is probably not going to be the way that it's always done. And the pandemic has laid this a little bit bare, right? The idea of a four-year on-campus university, you know, with the costs and everything associated with it is, is not something that's probably sustainable going forward. And also there's a lot of questions about preparation for the world, you know, beyond college and whether or not we're actually, we're actually serving that. I think we have to be get absolutely serious about income inequality in the country. You know, you cannot have a world where, you know, 10% of the folks have all the skills and, and finances necessary and everybody else is, is, is left behind. It's, it feels very gilded age. And I, you know, I think we need to, to recognize that, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a talking point and people throw it out, but I think at the core of that is we have a social safety net that's built for an industrial world and we're not living in that world anymore. So I think the next administration, you know, has to get really serious about that. And then also I think we need to look at our tax structure too, in a way that, you know, you have a tax structure right now, again, built for, large factories and large industrial facilities operating in a almost entirely service and technological world. So, you know, I think the, the next administration needs to look forward and, and see the world really as it is and start to, to address that. Yeah. Hearing Congress and the president debate tax cuts or, you know, stimulus packages. So it, it feels we need to turn the page, right. I'm hoping the next administration is able to do that. 
you know, California has got a, a, a gem of a community college system. It's, you know, one that we, we don't, I think, hype up enough in California, but we should because it, they're, they're the ones that are kind of on the cutting edge of making some of those turns. They're a little bit more nimble. They're able to, to activate at a much lower cost and, and get folks ready for the, for the workforce. But, you know, again, I think it's going to be driven by the people ground up. If you talk to a number of students today, high school and even the college level, you know, they, they are no longer looking for college in the same way that maybe we were. They're not looking for the, the college experience, if you will. They're looking at college as a way to get into employment, to get out into the world, to pursue whatever the dream is that they want to pursue. And so we have to start to re-envision, I think, the way that we're doing that. And that, that to me is a national conversation because 50 states trying to do that individually, they can. And certainly, I think federalism in this country will drive it forward by competition. But also, you don't want, you know, if, if a big chunk of the country is not prepared, you're, you're leaving a lot behind. So that's a, that's a national conversation we need to have. Yeah. And for that, you need leadership. Yeah, you do. You do. And if nothing else, uh, you know, a change in the administration that will work with all 50 states and not just those that voted for them would be a major step in the right direction. <laughs> because, you know, again, I think having those having that 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 president to governor, president to legislative dialogue would be helpful. And there's a lot of very large states representing a lot of people that did not support the president. You mentioned empathy uh, when we were talking more about sort of civil discourse in politics, mm-hmm. because that's exactly what you wrote in 2017. You said there's a need to develop empathy in pursuit of greater civil discourse with those with whom we disagree. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's huge. And I think in 2017, it would have been even a little bit more acute in my mind because of what had just happened in, in 2016. You know, again, I, I just don't think there's that much difference between the experience that's being faced by by, by people in, in California and those being faced by by people in Ohio in the sense of, you know, what is it that they care about? What is it, what is it that they hope for, for the future? Really see them going, it might look different in, in, in some ways because of, of the eyes are seeing it through, but I really just don't think there's that much difference if we could break down the barriers and, and talk and be, be empathetic towards what, what each other is experiencing. Everybody is experiencing something right now. Right? We need to put that first. You were 18 when you appeared in Teen People and when you reached elected office, what advice would you give to your 18 year old self today? <laughs> uh, probably don't think you know as much as you thought you did uh, back then. Because um, if I if I look back on it, I, I certainly thought that, you know, I, I could learn X, Y, and Z from, you know, being in the experience of the campaign or reading books or, you know, doing whatever I was doing. I, I think it would be important for me to tell myself back then uh, to, uh, to, to, to not think that I know uh, quite as much as I thought I knew. Uh, back then. Uh, but also, you know, the other thing that I would probably tell my 18 year old, so because I would have been caught up in this is, being elected is not the only way to be engaged in politics. And so I, I, you know, I think back then I I had a vision because you, you know, it's like, you know, politics for somebody interested in government as a kid is that's Hollywood and you're, you know, you're going into it and you're going to be, and that was, it was cool to be able to do it. But I would say, you know, I didn't fully realize at the time, the different ways you could be involved, could be active, to be engaged. And now 20 years later, I've had the chance to be involved in a number of those ways, many of which I've enjoyed even more. And so I would probably tell myself, you know, don't, don't think that's the end of the world if you're no longer in, in elected office. Where do you see your career going from here? I, well, the only thing I know for sure is that I will continue to be involved in, in government. I'll be involved in my in my city, in my area. Uh, like I said, I, I, I love them both. I love my job and I love I love being involved here in San Jose uh, and in the area. Uh, I, I don't know. I Right now I'm I'm where I'm at and I, and I love working for, for my boss and for the county. Uh, but, uh, but no, I mean, the only few things I can say for certain is I absolutely see myself retiring a Californian and I see myself retiring from government. So I know those two things for sure. I saw your Jay Leno interview. Okay. <laughs> my that first was trip funny. to California, actually. So I have double good memories. Your of that. first yeah. trip to California. That's wonderful. That was. Yeah. You just had so much confidence. Where did that come from? My, probably my dad. My dad, I, when I was growing up, my, my dad used to tell me all the time, it, two things that probably stuck with me the most were almost every day when I left for school, he said to believe in yourself, which is what he constantly told me, you know, when I, when I was, when I was growing up. And then the second thing that he would tell me is he goes, never always walk into a room as if you own it. And he would always, he'd always reiterate that over and over. And he, he made a very clear distinction between being arrogant and doing that. And I obviously, unfortunately have probably violated his trust in that regard uh, many times over, but, but I think it probably came from him. He was, uh, he was a, uh, a big believer in, in self-respect and self-esteem. And he, he taught us that growing up. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear you lost him. Uh, thank you for that. Yeah, I lost him last summer. 
um, that oh, was uh, that, that, that was tough. Uh, he was he was too young. He was only 72. Um, but uh, but great man. And uh, you talk about the blessings of life. I was I was blessed to have him in my life and uh, to learn you know so much from him throughout throughout the years. I, I I certainly regret not being around when it happened because you know there was thousands of miles of difference between the two of us. But uh, but but great person and yeah, it was a great blessing to have him in my life. Do you still feel like an Ohioan at heart? No, I don't. I don't. I, so, sorry to, to Ohio. Um, no, I, you know, I, I, I came to California, like I said, in 2007, I've been here a long time and I, I very much feel like a Californian now. It's a, it's a really welcoming place that they, you know, they welcome me in. And it's interesting that you, you, um, the, the two things coming together at the same time, when my, my, when my dad passed last summer, that was probably the point where I fully recognized how much this place was home, the, the warmth and the love that I felt from, you know, friends here. And I felt very much like a Californian for a number of years now, but I think that brought it home the most. It was, um, you know, San Jose, when I moved here, people said, you know, it's the biggest, it's the smallest big city in the world. Right. And honestly, I kind of chalk that up to cliche. You know, everybody says that I felt it last summer. I, I got really, it felt like being in a, a small town of, of, of loved ones at a time where I needed it the most in the middle of a, of a really large American city. So I, you know, I, I, I value it. I love it. Um, and so, yeah, I, no offense to my home state. I love Ohio, but I, I absolutely felt like a Californian for a very long time. <laughs> That's great. It's good to be settled where you are. Yeah, I agree. That, I that's agree. That's a really important skill in life. Yeah, it's I, I agree. And and that again, just adding on this more blessings, right? Yeah, it's been a, it's been a wonderful adopted home. Twenty years ago, Derek swept into politics in the manner of Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, and indeed President Trump and other emerging figures in the right wing of the Republican Party. I've been thinking about something Derek said during our interview, that not being an incumbent makes a candidate electable today. Donald Trump is the incumbent, but so is Joe Biden, in a way. Biden represents the Obama administration. And Donald Trump, despite the pandemic, has incumbency on his side. Most first-term presidents win re-election. So if both candidates represent what has gone before, where does that leave the American voter? When Joe Biden accepted the Democratic nomination, he evoked the final message of Jack Layton, former leader of the New Democratic Party of Canada. Layton died of cancer in 2011, just weeks after leading the NDP to official opposition status for the first and only time in Canada's parliament. In a message to Canadians, Layton wrote, My friends, love is better than anger. Hope is better than fear. Optimism is better than despair. So let us be loving, hopeful, and optimistic, and we'll change the world. Don't let them tell you it can't be done. I hope we see more of that kind of optimism in politics in the coming months and years. Join me next time for another episode of Teen People. Until then, I'm Anna Soper. <laughs>